Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Given everything that's going on in the world right now, uh, and, and also just because it was a good thing to do anyway, we have decided to do a special episode about racial inequality and also trade. And we are going to have three very special guests. So my name is Elora Durenincourt, and I'm an assistant professor of economics and public policy at UC Berkeley. My name is Mary-Kate Batistich. I am assistant research professor in the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities uh, in the Department of Economics at the University of Notre Dame. I am Timothy Bond. I'm an associate professor of economics uh, at the Krenert School of Management at Purdue University. This episode does cover a lot of American history, so, so do hang with us. There's going to be three papers that we're going to look at. There are two by Alora about her research, one looking at the impact of the Great Migration, and a second looking at the impact of minimum wage increases in the 1960s. And then a third paper we're going to talk about is by Mary-Kate and Timothy that looks at the impact of increased imports in the 1970s and 80s on racial inequality. To start everything off, we asked Elora exactly what the Great Migration was. So the Great Migration was this massive internal population movement in the U.S. that occurred over the course of the 20th century. And it was a movement of roughly 6 million African-Americans out of the U.S. South into cities in the north and west of the country. Some really powerful forces were driving these movements. There were two forces that influenced the movement of African-Americans out of the South and into the North or roughly the non-South. On the one hand, there were these demand-side factors or pull factors. So during World War I and World War II, war production meant that labor demand was increasing in the more industrial North And for the first time, those factories were hiring Black workers in large numbers. Uh, There were interruptions to the supply of European immigrant labor at that time, also due to the World Wars. And then you had, after World War II, the auto industry, which was really taking off and also drawing on this pool of labor that was a cheaper pool of labor from the South. But at the same time, you had these changes in the Southern economy For example, most Black families were agricultural or in farming in the South in the mid-century. And agriculture was mechanizing over this time period. So that meant job loss. It lowered the opportunity cost of migrating out of the South. Now, add on to that the fact that in the South, Black families faced ongoing social, political, and economic repression of their rights in the Jim Crow era. So it didn't take much, in other words, to just get people to leave the region en masse. So the question that Alora looked at is, is what this mass movement of people did to the people who were involved. Were people moving into opportunity? Because if you think about some of the places that people were moving to back then, those are some of the worst places in the country to grow up black today. So Alora essentially asks, what happened? Did the migration fundamentally change the trajectory of upward mobility for Black families in the region. Normally, it's pretty hard to work out the effects of a movement like this. 
But in this case, the way people moved meant that Elora could estimate the effects of migration on the cities where people ended up. One of the most important factors for determining where migrants went was essentially where people from their hometown or community had gone before. And so if you take the case of two cities in the north, Detroit and Baltimore, both of them were known as major great migration destinations, but they differed radically in where Black Southern migrants into those cities had originally come from. So in Detroit, the plurality of Black Southerners had come from Alabama, whereas in Baltimore, the plurality of Black Southerners had come from Virginia. And Alabama and Virginia had two very different migration histories over the course of the Great Migration. Alabama was a cotton planting state, so cotton was undergoing mechanization over this time period. People were losing jobs in that sector. Virginia received a lot of war contracts during World War II. So those kinds of changes meant that the region retained jobs and workers. So if you combine those two pieces of information, you can actually simulate what would happen to the Black population in Detroit or in Baltimore, given that the origin locations that people were coming from were experiencing different shocks. And people have used this identification strategy or empirical design to understand what is the effect of a racial composition shock to a city, what was happening to Detroit and Baltimore, on those locations. Turns out that this migration was associated with some pretty bad outcomes. The punchline is that I find that growing up in a great migration city today lowers children's long-run outcomes. So I find that the incidence of these changes falls on Black men as a subgroup in particular. And to kind of state that very clearly, if I were to compare Black men growing up in the city of Detroit, which was one of the most important destinations during the Great Migration, to those growing up with identical parent income, so growing up in very similarly resourced families, in the city of Pittsburgh, which was more at the median in terms of being a great migration destination. Those growing up in Detroit would have lower household income. Now, there are at least two reasons why you might get these worse outcomes. It could just be to do with the kinds of people who are now living in these places. Maybe the people who moved were just less able to secure good outcomes for their kids. Or maybe it wasn't a composition effect. Maybe it was something about those places themselves that changed. I'm going to find that this decline in upward mobility is 100% driven by the change in the childhood environment. It's not driven by the kinds of families living in these locations today. Now, to understand how these locations changed, I collected about roughly 100 years of data starting in the 1920s through around 2015, on schooling patterns, residential patterns, and local government spending. And two things popped out. One, in terms of the behavior of incumbent white households living in these locations at the time that migrants were coming in, they withdrew from shared urban neighborhoods and were more likely to enroll their kids in private schools as opposed to public schools. So there's a separation into separate tracks for black and white families. The second thing is that there's a sharp decline in the quality of the urban environment 
starting uh, around 1960. And by a sharp decline in the you know, urban environment quality, what I mean is I observe higher urban murder rates and great migration locations. I see local governments investing more in police and I see higher incarceration rates. Now, in all other areas where local governments have a lot of discretion, for example, education, sanitation, health, I see no investments, essentially. The one public investment that increases across the governments located in this commuting zone is police spending. So these policy changes that Laura is describing don't sound like they were positive for the residents of these places. And so, so essentially you have millions of people moving over the Great Migration. Um, and, and to be clear, if you were a black migrant leaving Alabama or, or Mississippi in 1940, you could double your earnings by moving to the North. So just by doing that, you were essentially improving outcomes for you and your family. But Elora also finds that in the long run, the places that got more arrivals saw worse outcomes for later generations of black men. Things happened in those places that made it harder for those black men to become richer than their parents. And so those things include white flight. In those great migration cities like Detroit, white families moved out to the suburbs. More white kids and fewer black kids became enrolled in in private schools. And local governments in these cities spent more money on policing and incarceration, leading to less public tax revenue to be used on other things. There was this huge thing that happened in the economic history of Black people in the U.S., which is the Great Migration. That did help their outcomes in a lot of ways. But, you know, Black people migrated and then racism nationalized, you know. So we had the development of a very different form, you know, of racial prejudice, but it emerged. And that removed a ladder of opportunity. In the end, I firmly believe that on net, the effect of the migration was positive. You do end up ahead. I guess what you could say is, you know, we didn't have to have the reaction that we did. We didn't have to remove the ladder for Black families, right? So the gains might have been even greater, and we should really study the processes that occurred in response to Black people moving in and figure out, you know, did we have to have that fate or could we have had something even better? So that's The Great Migration and Alora's first paper. And really, she's looking at upward mobility. What is driving the, the gap in upward mobility between white kids and black kids whose parents were around in the 1950s or 60s? And it looks like this backlash against the Great Migration was an important factor. But now we're going to switch up our measures of racial inequality to focus on the racial earnings gap. And so the racial earnings gap is the difference in the income that white versus black workers were earning in their jobs. Now, clearly, these two measures of inequality are related. If, if white people are finding it easier to get ahead than their parents relative to black people, then it's hard to see how the earnings gap between um, white people and black people is going to be closing. But, but from now on, we're really going to be focusing on, on the contemporaneous Um, immediate effects of what is driving the black-white earnings gap. As Alora says, in the second half of the 20th century, there was essentially one period where that gap was closing. If you look starting from 1950 to today, 
there's been essentially one decade-long period in which there was a reduction in the racial earnings gap. And that was roughly from 1965 to 1975. The gap closed in half. So it was, you could say, Black workers earned 50 cents on the white dollar in 1950. By the mid-1970s, they earned 75 cents on the dollar. When trying to explain why these improvements happened, economists have typically focused on examples of civil rights legislation, like school desegregation. What my co-author, Claire Montielou, and I look at, and which economists hadn't looked at before, was the fact that there was a very significant reform to the federal minimum wage in 1966, which expanded minimum wage coverage to these industries that had been completely excluded from coverage. And those industries are agriculture, retail, and services. So these are canonical minimum wage industries. In those industries, Black workers were overrepresented. Basically, what we find is that Earnings increase in the newly covered sectors relative to the previously covered sectors. So that's our kind of key empirical strategies to compare these two sectors or sets of sectors rather. And the increases are twice as large for black workers as for white. And that comes from the fact that they are in a lower part of the earnings distribution, more of them subject to the new minimum wage than white workers. So they get twice as large a a boost. And interestingly, what we see is really um, quite negligible effects on employment and very negligible effects on the relative employment of black versus white workers. So we're not really seeing employers substituting in meaningful numbers towards white workers after the reform. What that means is that this reform helps reduce the, not just the racial earnings gap, right, because it had that larger effect on Black workers' earnings, but also the racial income gap, because it's not causing a lot of Black workers to leave the the labor force. These effects were big. The minimum wage increase or the expansion of coverage to these new industries was basically the size of the effect of school desegregation. It was enormous. It was roughly one-fifth of earnings convergence between Black and white workers during the civil rights era. So this is positive. The, The minimum wage is rising. The racial earnings gap seems to be closing. Things seem to be going in the right direction. And then they don't. Things start to go wrong, in particular for Black men. We asked Laura about the theories out there for why, in the, in the 70s and 80s, this progress stalled. One thing that my co-author and I hypothesize is that the federal minimum wage starts to decline in real terms after 1968. So we've never had, in real terms, a minimum wage, a federal one, as high as that. That's one force. The other is that the wage premium through union membership for Black workers has been higher than that for white workers since roughly 1950 or so. So, you know, there's this history of unions as actually participating in racial exclusion before roughly 1950. But after that, Black workers are more likely to be in unions and they get a bigger boost out of it. Well, unions have been declining since 1950. Wage inequality has grown 
since 1970. And part of that has to do with returns to skill. So the um, premium for college-educated workers has been increasing. Even though there's been convergence in educational attainment, this is what Bayer and Charles in their paper on divergent earnings describe as the headwind that Black men in the labor market are facing. So even though they're getting closer in terms of the educational attainment of white men, that extra advantage that white men have through that college degree is skyrocketing. And then finally, a very important piece is the rise of mass incarceration, which they kind of think is one of the most important pieces in the uh, evolution of the employment gap. So we have these theories for what is going wrong. And some more context may be useful here. It it is the 1970s. So in the United States, you've got high unemployment, high inflation, stagflation. You've got the oil crisis. So you've got really high oil prices. And you've also got the decline of manufacturing employment as a share of, of overall employment in the U.S. economy. So if there's one lesson of this episode, it's just that there is a lot going on all at the same time here. And now we're going to turn to the role of trade. Trade, our favorite. So just a quick reminder, when we're thinking and talking about trade, we're typically talking about manufactured, tradable goods. And so thinking about the kinds of jobs making those manufactured goods, they're typically relatively well paid, uh, or at least relative to other jobs that people with with similar qualifications um, could have had. So... So the story is that over the 1960s, black men had really been making inroads into manufacturing, had been getting these relatively good jobs. But then in the 1970s and 80s, they began falling out of manufacturing at a higher rate than white men. Um, And just another quick note, um, when Alora was talking about her research, that looked at men and women. But from now on, the the study that that Mary-Kate and Timothy do, they're just focusing on on the dudes. (laughs) The dudes. I can do the American lingo. Yeah, that's that's great. (laughs) It's the first time I think we've used the word dudes on trade talks. Here's Mary-Kate and what her paper with Timothy Bond looked into. The question that we're really trying to answer in this research is to what extent does this unprecedented increase in import competition from Japan play a role in the stalling and reversal of Black economic progress that we observed in the 1970s and 1980s? So here, the theory that they're testing is whether imports hit Black workers particularly hard. And Trade Talks listeners will will surely remember that Japan was the source of a lot of those new imports coming into America during this period of the 1970s and early 1980s. So things like cars, steel, electronics, lots of different types of products. So our hypothesis was was that you had increase in competition in the manufacturing sector. You had black workers who were an increasingly important part, increasingly economically tied to that sector. And that because of this competition, because of this downturn in manufacturing that was caused by this competition, black workers were the ones who felt the full brunt of, of the economic negative economic effects that happen from this. Testing this theory is obviously not straightforward. How do you know that you're picking up the effects of import competition and not just some general trend in manufacturing? So what we looked at was essentially we took a a methodology coming from the way that people looked at the Chinese trade shock is we're comparing different labor markets, all of which were manufacturing goods, but some manufactured different products than others. 
And Japan manufactured a different set of products and exported them. So if you were a city that was manufacturing automobiles like Detroit, or if you're manufacturing watches like in Pennsylvania, then you were heavily competing with Japan. So we're going to compare the outcomes of black Americans that were living in these cities that were competing with Japan to those that were not and look at how their outcomes differed. So I should say at this point that Tim has been a really great Trade Talks guest and trying to offer the world a simple version of what they did. Um, but to the to the many trade geeks out there, obviously what they did was a bit more complicated than that. Um, essentially what they worried about was that the increase in imports is somehow a response to, to the decline in domestic production. And so what they did to solve this problem is they essentially mimicked what is done in the China shock literature. And so they're essentially measuring exposure to Japanese import competition by looking at those industries where Japan's exports to the rest of the world were increasing most. Okay, so don't worry if you didn't follow that. What you really need to know is um, that they measure whether the places that were more exposed to, to Japanese imports saw relatively worse outcomes for black men. And what we found is that if you were in a city that was manufacturing products that competed with Japan, we saw a big increase in racial inequality in that city compared to a city that was manufacturing. It was a manufacturing town. It was manufacturing products, but they weren't competing directly with Japan. The results don't seem to be driven by any one particular product. Right. So, and this is something that's a little bit interesting to differentiate the types of imports that were coming in from Japan relative to what we see from China. So here, you know, Japan was already largely an industrialized country. We're importing really sophisticated products, cars, more fuel-efficient vehicles. We're importing watches, TVs, electronics, branded products. And in terms of locations, you might think about the Rust Belt, so different regions in the Rust Belt, of course, were historically producing cars, and that was definitely an element of who was affected by this. But of course, that's not the only thing. So there are other regions, you know, we can run our same estimation, remove the Rust Belt, and we still find negative effects. So it's happening throughout the country. Now, I think for many folks, maybe a decade ago, the model that economists had of, of the labor market was that, sure, shocks hit. But people adjust. Import competition arrives, but the workers affected by that find other stuff to do. And allowing for that kind of adjustment could even be good for the overall economy. Mary-Kate and Timothy looked into whether those Black men affected by this import competition found other work. What we're finding is these Black workers who were hit by this trade shock and lost their manufacturing jobs, they you know, you would hope that they'd be able to find alternative employment in non-manufacturing. But unfortunately, that's not what we're seeing. We're not seeing any kind of re-employment in non-manufacturing. We're finding that these workers eventually drop out of the labor market altogether. So that is to say they become, you know, disengaged and are no longer even seeking employment. Dropping out of the labor market here is not great. Obviously, you've, you've lost the wages that you would have had from that job. Uh, When they looked at wages of people who stayed in work, they didn't actually find much of an effect. This shock didn't seem to reduce wages. But black family incomes went down as, as the men who lost their jobs couldn't make up that lost income with employment elsewhere. And they find that these effects are pretty big. They, they find that the Japan shock explained around two thirds of the relative decrease in black manufacturing employment. 
Now, remember, I said those those lost jobs were relatively well paid. And so they think that this this shock might have had an even bigger effect on the racial gap in, in average or median earnings. And so this isn't good. Racial inequality is unfair. It's, it's horrible. And America's record here is shameful. And so we should be worried about anything that makes it even worse. And the next obvious question is, why did this happen? Why were black men in manufacturing affected so much worse than their white male colleagues? Now, before we dive into the reasons, I should say that obviously one challenge looking into this topic is that in America, there are all sorts of racial inequalities just embedded into life just because of the persistent effects of historical racism, the way policies were designed and so on. I guess it's sort of structural racism that's baked in. And, you know, some some of the policies that Alora was mentioning contribute to that and they can be very difficult to estimate. With that big caveat in mind, Mary-Kate and Timothy tried to look into the possible explanations for what was going on. One of the things they looked at was racial discrimination. It's possible, and and even plausible, that Black men were just more likely to lose their jobs because their managers were racist. In terms of discrimination, it's always difficult to measure measure prejudice. It's something that, that is just not something that is easy to find in data and things like that. So it's always going to be a bit murky about whether or not we're successful at finding evidence or not finding evidence to support this. What we did is we looked at the election results from the 1968 presidential election. 1968 was actually a three-candidate election. You had a third-party candidate, George Wallace, who was running on a segregationist ticket. And so we looked at, did black workers fare worse, or was the effect of Japanese import competition more harsh on black workers in areas that voted more heavily for George Wallace? And in fact, we didn't find evidence for that. So it's not just, you know, we looked at both absolute and relative to your region. So absolute would be everybody in the South voted for George Wallace. It wasn't the fact that black workers did worse in the South. But even if we look inside the Midwest, there was variation in how many people voted for George Wallace across different congressional districts and things like that in the the Midwest. Uh, And we don't see that within regions, black workers did worse in areas that voted more for George Wallace. To the extent that that was measuring the amount of prejudice that was in the locality, that would suggest that that wasn't the main factor that was happening here. But I emphasize that, you know, that's very difficult to measure exactly the amount of prejudice that people are facing in different parts of the country in in any time period. We just don't have great data on that. Another explanation is that in response to all of this import competition, companies thought, okay, well, well, to stay competitive with all these Japanese products, we're going to have to invest in, in new machines. And, and maybe those are going to mean that we have to hire lots of, of highly skilled workers. And so when Timothy and Mary Kate look at the data, what they find is that all of the increase in white manufacturing employment comes from highly skilled workers in this category of engineers. And at the time, there may have been fewer black engineers or black college graduates that might have been ready to take on those jobs. We found strong evidence that skills does seem to matter. The black employment losses that we found were all concentrated among black high school dropouts. However, we didn't really see effects on white high school dropouts. So there is some sort of question on whether it was 100% skills or if there is some sort of mix in here with skills. The reason that we think that it's not a fair comparison to just say that if white high school dropouts had different effects than on black high school dropouts is because the nature of the education that whites had compared to blacks was obviously unequal in this time period. 
were looking at black high school dropouts in manufacturing. Many of them were educated in the segregated South in much less quality schools. Southern schools in general were lower quality than Northern schools, but of course the black schools were of even lower quality. And so we're looking at people who had little uh, little formal education in very underfunded schools, particularly the, the people who were part of the Great Migration. And those are the people who bear the brunt of this economic effect in terms of our data. We also did a breakdown. We looked at whether you were Southern-born Blacks or Northern-born Blacks. And among Black workers, it was the Southern-born Blacks who were most hard hit by the trade shock. Another possibility is that the white workers were more heavily unionized, and that meant that they were better protected when companies started looking into laying people off. But Mary-Kate and Timothy don't find good evidence that, that that was going on in this case. And as Alora said, during this period, black workers had higher unionization rates than white workers. And black workers didn't seem to be affected differently in states with higher or lower unionization rates. The other explanation that they looked into had to do with geography. So, so when they were looking at who was employed in manufacturing, it seems that the places that those workers were living in changed over time. The people holding those jobs were moving. They weren't living in, in the central city areas. They were moving towards people who were living in the suburbs. So maybe, maybe the people in the cities didn't have access to these jobs that were changing location. However, when you look at the actual locations of the jobs, we have census of manufacturers that ask where the factory is located. The factories themselves didn't move. They just switched from employing inner city workers to suburban workers, which is probably a symptom of the switch from employing blacks to whites or moving from low skill to high skill workers. We didn't see the factories themselves moving away from where black workers were located. Okay, so looking through all the different possible explanations, Mary-Kate and Timothy argue for the one that says educational differences are what's driving this differential impact. We thought we would ask Laura what she thought about this paper. Um, and, and don't worry to all the academics listening who just winced. Um, we're not about to start a kind of podcast peer review. Um, but she, she had seen the paper um, and she said that it really squared with this idea um, of last in, first out, right? There are people at the bottom of, of the career ladder that with that first foot on that first rung and they're going to be first to get kicked off when something goes wrong. She also said that the effect of this trade shock on the gaps in manufacturing employment for black men and, and white men, they seemed plausible. Now, she, she had a question about how much of this story was driving the aggregate changes and outcomes across the whole labor market, um, so not just in manufacturing. And she also offered a, a different interpretation for why southern-born workers did worse than the northern-born black workers in those northern cities. Maybe the problem was with employers' expectations and not with the workers' skill levels them themselves. So the southern-born Black workers who are getting displaced are the ones who just arrived. And there is work showing that in the historical narrative work that some Black southern workers would hide their actual educational background, you know, because they were penalized for that and not expected to have, you know, a lot of skill. And there was a lot of discrimination. So if you were a Black Southern worker, you would be last in line for that job, far behind a white Southern worker who also has low education, right? So Black workers were competing with each other in a way, in, in, a, in a segmented labor market. 
So I would put that out there. It's not necessarily a school quality story. It's also potentially just discrimination. Going back to Timothy, he told us about how this shock to manufacturing could have had persistent effects. It could even add to this bigger story that Elora was describing in her research about how something kicked away this ladder of opportunity for Black people after this period of, of promise. I mean, if you look at historical patterns of immigration or historical patterns of generations, you sort of see, you know, you have manufacturing as sort of like a, as a ladder to move up, and then you've got you know, a healthy home environment and sort of a, a middle to low skilled job that's well paying. And that allows you to invest in your children's education. Then your children go to college and things like that. When black Americans start to get involved and you see that our economic progress before black Americans are really able to get, you know, the benefits of having long term stable employment and manufacturing, those jobs are wiped out. And so you do sort of look at, you know, the, the, the things that we usually measure in economics to try and measure the racial, the gap and the things that we were seeing progress on are actually fairly short term measures. So employment, wages, income, things like that. Longer term health measures like home ownership, wealth, those don't close that much in this time period. And so it's perhaps because that that success that we saw was so fleeting. You didn't get long term established success that would have then been allowed to lead to an intergenerational investment. So the question that, that people ask is that, you know, we see that manufacturing gets hard for black communities in the 1970s and 1980s. But we look ahead, 1990s and the 2000s, especially, what about the China shock? What about technology that's decreased employment and manufacturing? Wouldn't black Americans have ended up getting hit anyways in these manufacturing jobs? And I think that it's possible that it's possible, obviously, that could have happened. But it's also possible that with 20 years of stable employment, it would not have been such a catastrophe because you could have had the intergenerational effects. You could have had more establishment of wealth and things like that that would have allowed blacks and children of, of people who are working here to get better education and get more established and get into jobs that were more diversified and less dependent and less vulnerable to these big economic shocks. And so I think it's, it's really hard to say, but I think there there is the possibility that this is sort of knocked a path of progress, that we're on a path of progress and just sort of knock people off that path. And once you're knocked off that path, there was no other path to sort of get back on to try and, to try and close things off. Based on these results from Mary-Kate and, and Timothy, I do think there is an important question for trade researchers, and that is, why has it taken us until now to find out about this? You know, one of the things I've wondered myself is how come, you know, I'm writing, we're writing in, in 2019, 2020, about something that happened in the 70s, the 80s. Why is it that people didn't see this 20 or 30 years ago? And, you know, part of it is just the data wasn't available. Part of it was the methods weren't available. I think part of it was that people did not think that let's look at by race. Let's not see what's going on with black Americans here. In the same way that when we look today um, and we see things happening in the white community, it doesn't necessarily motivate the instantaneous reaction. Um, and so going back, and that's why going back and looking at these things are interesting because people back then just may have missed on it. You know, you look and see no, no aggregate effects on manufacturing. Let's move on. But wait, let's break down what's going on with race here because you know what's going on in this time period in the background was this big change, this big reversal of black economic progress. Now, if, you, if you've been following me on Twitter, you'll know that recently I've been writing about diversity within economics. And so I guess one question in, in the context of reading all these discussions about diversity among economists um, is, you know, could the fact that economists and researchers haven't been that diverse uh, have influenced the kinds of questions that, that they've been asking? Uh, I, I know what I think the answer to that question is. Now, going back to the 1970s and, and early 1980s and this Japan shock, it probably doesn't surprise anybody, but 
here on Trade Talks, we're pretty sure the right policy to have followed through with wouldn't have been trade restrictions. It's much more obvious that policymakers just failed to come up with domestic policies to support the people who lost their jobs as a result of this new import competition. I should also add that policymakers did try trade restrictions at the time. (laughs) Good point. Before we finish, we wanted to ask Alora about the one takeaway she'd like listeners to to come away with from this research. So since the subject of this particular episode is on job loss and unemployment and how shocks to jobs might differentially affect Black workers, I think that ties very well into our current context, which is one of exploding unemployment and recovery that doesn't look equal once again, for Black versus white workers. And so the, the, the note that I would want to end on is we should you know, draw lessons from this paper and think about how does the social safety net in the U.S. for unemployed workers, how might it be improved so as to kind of buffer these, these gaps a little bit? And the reason I bring that up is because a lot of U.S. labor market policy and social insurance programs were developed during the New Deal period, where Southern congressmen fought very hard to exclude their pool of labor. And they did it through this language of, you know, federal versus states' rights. What industries did the federal government have jurisdiction over? And they succeeded, as in the case of the minimum wage, in excluding whole industries from coverage, right? And our unemployment insurance system suffers from some of those same issues, It's very decentralized, so generosity depends on states rather than the federal government. And we think we're in a situation basically where Black workers, we know actually that Black workers receive lower benefits than white despite having higher unemployment rates. So I think the big takeaway for today and the current policy debate is, you know, what do we do about pandemic unemployment assistance? Do we extend it or not? And the thing I want to point out about the way the CARES Act changed our unemployment insurance system is that it might actually be redressing some of that inequality that was baked in from the beginning because it topped up the benefits that states were giving out and it also expanded eligibility. So both of those things are most likely, if carried out properly, going to close the racial gap in unemployment benefits and economic insecurity. And on that unexpectedly positive note, that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Mary-Kate Batistich at the University of Notre Dame, Timothy Bond at Purdue University, and Alora DeRenancourt of Berkeley. And as always, thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're at at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because two shocks are more informative than one.